0: Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson.
1: Hey, guys.
0: We have a very special episode today, guys. Um, We are bringing the best of the Burton Awards.
1: The best of the Burt's.
0: That's right. And right. If, if people haven't heard of the Burton Awards before First this, of all,
1: no shame in that, but <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> this was the 20th anniversary of these awards. They're held in Washington, D.C. and they recognize excellence in the law. So, mm-hmm. it's perfect for us.
1: Yes, yeah, so this pro se goes to Washington, you're about to hear right That's now. right.
0: And as uh, it's perfect for us, it's perfect for Law 360. And the company is actually one of the primary sponsors. So, we got to hobnob with some legal luminaries and talked to a bunch of them and we're going to bring you a lot of that today. Um we
2: also got to get lost in the Library of Congress. We
0: did. Yeah, that
2: was good. That we was did. interesting. Really...
1: Yes. Yeah, this uh, the, the all the interviews you're about to hear uh took place in the Library of Congress. Uh they were nice enough to put us up, but is uh it's uh, a labyrinthine uh building. It's a large building. <laughs> and it would, it uh, took some doing to get there. Nearly missed our very first interview, but it all turned out okay.
0: I will say though, I'm a little disappointed to be recording this stuff with you guys right now. Not because I don't love you guys, but it was really nice to see you in tuxes. It was, uh, it's, uh, it's really a step down when we're back in our regular work clothes. It's also
1: a step down to uh, podcast out of anywhere that is not the world's largest library. That's true. Uh, we are, I think, in the world's smallest podcast studio. But, <laughs> uh, you know, but that's but that's normal. That's baseline.
0: Well, the first thing we're going to get into, um, and this is pretty exciting, we're going to have some clips from Chief Justice John Roberts. Yes. I thought it was
2: pronounced Jean Robert. Let's back I from mean, the from the Gary sure. episode. It, yes. it should be Just if he sticks back, to that, you know.
0: I do want to make clear this is the one portion of our show today where we unfortunately did not get to directly interview the Chief Justice, but mm. we were there in the audience listening to his answers to a lot of um, really fun questions, and so we have some, some stuff to share with everybody today. Yeah,
1: yeah he was being interviewed by uh, the General Counsel for Bank of America, who is a guy named David Leach. Um, seemed to be a pretty bright guy And also they had They had clearly worked together They, they yeah. I think clerked think together For William yes. Rehnquist
2: Well and I think The I think he had He had been an associate Under him in private practice Yes, so, yes yeah, They yes. seem to know each other Fairly
1: well Yeah they had a good rapport And Roberts uh, Is um, a very uh, Interesting and engaging speaker um, And it was cool to hear him Sort of just uh, Riff on a couple Different topics Both uh, serious and unserious, which we'll get to a little bit later. First one that I thought was pretty interesting was um, he was
2: talking, obviously, we've seen some new some new justices on the court. We've seen Justice Neil Gorsuch, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And it, it was it was just fascinating to watch him sort of talking about wh- what the what the addition of a new justice does to the dynamic of the court in terms of how they approach cases and, uh, you know, how they, they go into dealing with the writing opinions and, and sort of doing their jobs. I think the other eight behave
3: better, first of all, um, because... um, uh, Including Including you? Including me. And think a little more about what we're talking about at conference. For example, uh, I've been serving with some members of the court for 12 years and all that, and we know each other's positions and arguments on a lot of things. Uh, But when someone new is there, uh, you kind of have to pause and say, okay, I can't just say you know, as you know, this is what I think about the Fourth Amendment in this area, you have to go and explain it to the new person a little more, and it causes you to think about it a little more carefully than you might otherwise do, and everybody else is doing the same thing. And it seems to me that, at least for a while, the the level of discussion kind of elevates a little bit, and, of course, you're learning about the new person. Uh, Now, Justice Kavanaugh is somebody uh, uh, most of us have known for a long time, and so we have some and been reading his opinions for a long time. Uh, So we have some sense of uh, uh, how he approaches some issues, but we're also learning in conference for the first time, uh, you know, the kind of discussions we have there and learning about him. Um, And everybody, uh, Justice White used to say, as soon as a new person comes on, it changes everybody. Um, you, You suddenly have, different perspectives on issues and maybe you're no longer the one who has a particular view like this because you understand his view a little a little better uh it it changes the whole whole
2: dynamic i love a good off-the-cuff uh citation to a former supreme court justice yeah well you know
1: they're all in the club yeah things like that yeah if there was a through line to the comments and you could hear it there it's like it's easy to forget it's not It's not just like a it's not just a learning machine that cranks out important legal opinions. There's human beings and they interact with each other. And that was interesting sort of look into how, uh, you know, how getting new blood in there kind of forced them to reevaluate and stuff like that. Um, The other one, the the, the next one we're going to hear is something that I know as you know, when when we're trying to cover the court. Uh, especially like sort of high court cases, one of the things that we in you know, journalism are always talking about is like, oh, there's new amicus brief filed. And I, I know I'm always thinking about, like, how, how, how important is it that some, that some trade association filed, filed an amicus brief?
0: Especially since we often see on the docket there can be dozens.
1: Dozens, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert, not very. <laughs> John, <laughs> yeah, John Roberts also has some thoughts on the matter. Let's hear it. I think they have to be um, focused uh, we get a lot
3: of amicus briefs that are filed more for the benefit of the organization filing them than for us. So they can say to the members, okay, we're the association of X, we filed a brief, and it says you know, the same things that the party's brief says, but we're in there, they're fighting for you. That, that's not worth very much at all. Um, if you have a brief, for example, some members of the court are very interested in the legislative history of statutes, others are not. So it's for a party filing a brief, you may not want to spend as much time on that as on other things. Um, But if you have an amicus and it basically says this is what we're presenting, the legislative history of this statute for justices who are interested, that's very valuable to have that. Or a brief uh, from people in the industry that uh, says this is what we think the impact of this ruling is going to be on our our particular uh, industry. A brief from the uh, labor organization saying you have this particular case about this employment issue. This is what we think the effect will be more generally. Um, uh, things like that. If it's a, a technologically challenging case, and we do get those, a brief that says, "All right, we're going to explain the technology." You have this patent issue. Here's a fuller explanation of how this actually works because people might be interested in that. So. An amicus brief that's focused like that and identifies it. This is, you know, this is what we're going to talk about can be can be very valuable. Mm-hmm. But so, one that just repeats the arguments that have already been made is a waste. If I,
2: you're playing the drinking game at home, we got a patent law. So uh, drink up.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that. I was going to say he's, it's the chief justice talking about amicus briefs. He mentions patents. I mean, this was the perfect event for me.
2: It was good, too. Uh, I mean, it was obviously a very candid moment. It was very interesting to hear uh, the ju- the justice talk about that aspect of, of the procedure of Supreme Court case, but um, amicus amicus is another is one of those oh, fun, right. legal, uh, how yeah. do you say it kind yeah. of terms. So, it's uh, it was fun to hear the, the Chief Justice. We know where he comes down
0: yeah. on that
4: one. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, the other thing he weighed in on kind of ties back to what we were talking about, about who was interviewing him. And they were talking a bit about the Supreme Court Bar, then and now, mm-hmm. as an idea. Um, and the Justice had some thoughts on um, whether or not things have improved over the, over the years.
3: The bar uh, today is very, very good. Um, uh, You know, I almost wish I could be a little more curmudgeonly and say, you know, not like back in my day or something, (laughs) but they are very good. It's a more specialized bar. Uh, In the 1980 term, I think there were three people, other than the government uh, lawyers, who argued more than one case. Now it's very, very common to have people appearing before you Typically, we've argued 20 cases or 50 cases or at least a dozen cases. It's very rare to have a case where you don't have a multiple, uh, a, a, an advocate with multiple arguments. A lot of great experience, which is valuable. And The same thing with the writing. The briefs are, by and large, very, very well, well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's good for us. We see people on a regular basis. We know that they're trustworthy, if they are. And if they have done something we think was stretching it a little bit, it takes... A long time to get that sort of blot uh, off uh, off your record. I, I will say we. I don't know about the others, but I certainly. It's a, a little nostalgic for the, you know, sole practitioner from a small town with his beat-up briefcase to come before the court. And um, but it just takes so much to do a good job at the court. and It's very hard uh, for that to happen. Yeah.
0: Um, you hear Roberts mention that 1980 term, mm-hmm. and just for anybody who like tuned into that. That's when he and the Bank of America G C were clerks together in yeah. the court. So they got their first exposure to what kind of practitioners were coming yeah. to argue.
2: It was funny to hear him mention that he was nostalgic for the, you know, the 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 solo practitioner making his way, taking his case yeah. to the Supreme Court. Um, the Brunetti case, which we're all waiting for, the the uh, profane trademark mm-hmm. case. Oh, yeah. um, that was a sole practitioner uh, arguing that case on behalf of this little clothing designer who wanted to, you know, the wanted to make the curse word as huh. a brand name, um, and he had a tough time. They 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 questioned <laughs> him hard. very, yeah, 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 yeah.
0: So all of that was really interesting. But then there was a, a moment that I, in particular, wanted to share because you sometimes wonder about the writing of the justices, how they get their style. And he had a really good answer for who he's writing for.
3: My colleagues may have a wide variety of answers to that question, but for me, it's easy. I'm writing my opinion for my sisters. They're they're three very intelligent individuals who are informed about what's going on, but they're not lawyers. Um, and I want, uh, you know, the intelligent layperson uh, who's interested in the, uh, uh, you know, the important legal developments of the day to be able to pick it up and read it. Um, and uh, no matter how technical the case. I mean, if it's a technical bankruptcy case, um, I want to be able to explain what this issue is about. Uh, And I I used to do it with briefs. I would give it to uh, someone who was working with me uh, uh, in the area, but not on the particular brief. And I said, okay, read this brief, read through it once. And at the end, you ask them, well, what's it about? What are the arguments on either side and who should win? And if they can't tell you that, then you got to go back and do it over again.
0: The funny thing to me about that is that I would like to say I'm doing pro se for my sister, <laughs> but she rarely listens to our <laughs> show. <laughs> so apparently I'm just not – I'm not at the level of Justice Roberts.
1: Uh, he – about midway through the answer there, he name-checked. Like, oh, it's like a technical bankruptcy case. Bill and I exchanged a glance uh, in the auditorium we were listening because he decided – to. Inc- I mean, you know more about it than I do – an incredibly, like it, like, intricate – uh, copyright, bankruptcy,
2: trademark trademark, trademark, trademark. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Case that morning, that, that uh, very like, morning, like, out, like moments before. Yes. That morning,
0: uh. and from Washington DC, Bill was scrambling to help with a breaking news alert from Law Three Sixty on yeah. that.
1: It was, it was telling though. what you hear him say it, I mean, it's like you know, if the it's the law is a is a technical thing and it it is complicated for a reason. But if it's like if you're if the if the final word of the highest court is like impenetrable, he clearly has a strong feeling about about how how useful that is as a as a public service, which right. is interesting to hear about. Um, as we've mentioned a couple of times, uh, Roberts and the man interviewing him uh, obviously were both clerks before they ascended to higher uh, parts of the uh, the legal uh, profession. Uh, Roberts is in the highest uh, part of the legal profession you can you can attain. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about um, the important role that clerks serve um, as uh, you know a tool of the court. And Roberts had a really uh, remarkable uh, sort of view on sort of his clerks and his relationship with them.
3: Now, uh, again, there are different views on this sort of thing. I actually don't like law clerks to have too much experience. Some of my colleagues are different and they like the fact that they've been out in the world for a while, and I understand that, but I I want uh, people who are, as you say, sort of fresh. They haven't haven't gotten too good. Like, if they're writing memos or descriptions, I don't want it to be kind of a finished product like you would submit to a court because it makes it harder sometimes. I mean, you know, our, um, our old boss, uh, Justice, and then Chief Justice Rehnquist, whatever the assignment was for his law clerks, you had 10 days to do it. I mean, it could be, you know, rewrite Marbury versus Madison or something, but you had 10 days. And I remember telling him at one point, you know, if you gave me an extra week, I could do a much better job. And he said, you know, well, John, The idea is not for you to do a good job. It's for me to do a good job. And I think I would do a better job if you got that to me on time. (laughs) Uh, And there is a
0: lot of wisdom in that. You you
3: don't want someone who does too good a job. It doesn't kind of leave much room for you to do what you're supposed to do.
0: I love that clip for a few reasons, but one of them is he made jokes like that throughout his remarks um, really got some genuine laughs out of the crowd which I wasn't quite expecting but it really made it a joy (laughs) to listen to him talk about the court
5: yeah yeah
1: it was good and we will hear some of the uh some of the more uh humorous bits a little bit later um but uh we do have some interesting other interviews that we actually conducted ourselves uh that we can get to now
2: So, yeah, it was a really interesting day of sitting in the Library of Congress in this very opulent setting, uh, you know, grabbing folks who were at this, uh, the really distinguished folks who were at this um,
1: this event and uh, asking them a few questions. It was like a very nerdy version of Radio Row at the Super Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. like set up shop and say, yeah. hey, someone want to talk here? Yeah. yeah. Do you want to come
2: and, do you want to duck into that? We had like a side room set yeah. up for yep. our own purposes. Cool. Yes. The um, first person we spoke to was Dorian Daly, who is the general counsel at Oracle. Um, I've interacted with Dorian and some of the other Oracle people because I've been covering that Oracle Google case sure. for. A decade now. Um,
0: <laughs> Your whole life, of here.
2: <laughs> but um, super interesting talk. We talked. Um, we you know we talk on the show a lot about um, gender diversity in the firm context, but not so much in the uh, in the, the general counsel in the in house context. And um, you know it, that there's no better place to talk about that really. Maybe these days than. Um, in terms of a big Silicon Valley company where it's, you know, it's known as this sort of like VC vest bro culture. And, um, you know, it was really interesting to talk to, we sort of put that to Dorian and said, like, you know, you run, you run the legal department at this really huge Silicon Valley company. Talk to us about some of the challenges that 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 poses.
4: Well, I do talk about it a lot. Um, It's one of the things that I'm doing with increasing frequency, notwithstanding a pretty demanding uh, work schedule. But I do think that that is pretty important, and I've done a lot of that uh, in my own organization. We do a lot, and I'm actually quite proud of our record. Not only do we have more than 50% of our attorneys uh, as women, but uh, it's 50% in leadership positions and management position mm-hmm. as well, and that is both a recognition of just the talent generally in the organization, but also some thought that went into it. At At Oracle, in general, uh, we're doing uh, a lot, and I think a lot of that starts at the top. As I did with my own organization, uh, one of our CEOs has really put a lot of effort into the Oracle Women's Leadership Organization, funding it. Uh, supporting various drives that they have, um, programs that they have. And this is really a, an organization with chapters uh, in different offices around the globe that allow women to talk about the development, have some networking, education, uh, lots of programming just to get them together and thinking about different strategies for success. I participate in OWL events everywhere I go around the world. It's been a really important thing that I've been able to do and very exciting thing for me. Uh, we also have an emerging leaders program that is uh, really focused on identifying high, high potential women and putting them through an intensive program on business strategies, thought leadership, uh, as well as. Individual and and group development uh, to be able to really propel them into management positions and importantly to keep them at the at the company uh, and then of course we've got HR engagement with senior leaders across the globe to be able to identify those high potential and work with the, those women through uh, our talent review boards. I think what we're doing mirrors what a number of other companies are doing as well. We've heard a lot about this criticism of this being a bit of a, a bro culture, mm-hmm. but I think when you see senior leadership, especially women in senior leadership, yeah. uh, it really helps to start change that culture.
0: Yeah, that was a really interesting look at how they are pushing back about uh, against bro culture and doing a lot of things to make sure women mm-hmm. stay in the profession, stay engaged at Oracle. But then we also turned to um, more people matters in staffing things. And mm-hmm. Bill, you mentioned that giant Google Oracle case. And even though Oracle has a staff of 500 yeah, that legal was an professionals, to yeah. she told us that during our talk, um, that's not enough when you need some specialized people for big litigation like that. So we asked her what it's like to try to recruit that and how they do it.
1: Well, one, one, I'm glad you mentioned sort of working with outside firms when cases like this bubble up. Um, most of our most of our listeners and readers are big law attorneys and i'm always yes. curious to know about the process that an in-house legal shop goes through when you if you decide you're going to court and like it's I, I pictured it as like big law like lottery draft or something <laughs> i know that's not exactly how it works but how do you as the gc sort of like evaluate what is the sort of good best legal option for us sure. like with with outside counsel
4: sure and i think different uh, companies do it in different kinds of ways. Yeah. So for a really large case, we'll usually invite different firms in that we're interested in working on, working with, and 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 see what they think about the particular case. What are their thoughts about it? Um, whether we're uh, we are on the uh, on the plaintiff side or on the defense side. Uh, give us some of your thinking about this. How would you staff this? How would you yeah. organize it? We want to make sure that they understand on our side how we are going to engage. So mm-hmm. typically, these are going to be firms that we worked with before, and we've yeah. developed those relationships. I figured as much, but and yeah. they get how we how we work. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do have a um, we do have a um, I'd say a process when we're working with outside firms. Uh, my team likes to tease me about this. I call it playing naked twister. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Very evocative imagery. Absolutely. (laughs) And and, and intentionally so, but the, but the, the internal process is that we challenge one another. We're all over the place because we're really trying to figure out where could this thing go? What could pop up? What are the challenges that we're just not thinking about? So we're all over the place. Um, and, uh, it's not always, you know, pretty. It may not be sort of, you know, our internal process may not be pretty. But right, ultimately, right. the goal is is to win, and we get to a we get to a good result. Yeah. And our outside firms actually like playing naked twister, as it turns out. <laughs> so, Sounds um, fun, honestly. I mean, if I'm if I'm right. being candid, yes. But we do need to find a, a firm on a particular matter like this that has the uh, endurance, sure. where we yeah. have the right. the confidence that they can engage with us in the right kind of way. If we need them to be able to speak to the press, that they've got the ability to, to do that. And frankly, that they're they're very, very committed. We want to work with firms that, as we say, um, you know, bleed Oracle red, and uh, and happily for us, we've got a number of firms in that category. Nice. Naked Twister, it's the mean, headline. I mean, it's the headline. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, that was very, very humorous, but a fascinating look behind the behind the uh, behind the curtain there, yeah. just because they just obviously a lot at stake uh, when tech companies go to litigation, and of course they take their outside counsel pretty seriously Um, the next interview that we conducted uh, was with a man named Ivan Fong and he is the general counsel for 3M uh, I'm actually. I actually told producer Steve today. I'm mad because I forgot to ask him as something of an icebreaker question what his favorite 3M product is because they make oh, one billion consumer. They do product. a ton. Uh, you should have
2: written a post-it note to remember that. I know.
1: <laughs> and then I and then I mean it has adhesive, but just to be safe, I could tape it with the huge two-inch uh, you know plastic uh, you know packing tape. That's good. Right. Um, but uh, we did have a very serious conversation with him about. Uh, sort of mental health issues as it applies to the legal industry and burnout and things like that. And he had, uh, th- that's something his company's taken very seriously and he had some, uh, some interesting thoughts on it. Um, you know, 3M, you have uh, drafted this, um, you know, uh, ABA uh, well-being pledge and we write about this. This manifests in a lot of different workplaces but we cover the legal industry and um, I just wanted to, uh, we wanted to talk to you about like why this was like a priority for you and the company.
5: Yeah, I appreciate your bringing it up. It is uh, something that I feel is under-discussed and and really important. Um, I think uh, just a a cursory view of some of the uh, studies and statistical uh, research shows an increased incidence of depression, severe anxiety, uh, substance abuse and addiction, uh, suicide, and other mental health issues in the legal profession and I think the um, pressures uh, and circumstances in in-house law departments are um, very similar to those in other parts of uh, the profession. So uh, I felt it was important. I read the uh, ABA report, uh, which was, uh, I'd say a year year and a half ago, and it was pretty compelling. It was very powerful, and I, I encourage you to uh, take a look at it. You know we see it in our own lives. Uh, the yeah. increased stress and anxiety, the pace of change, we are always on, 24-7 availability, uh, just increased pressure to perform. Uh, and we all just need to make sure we take care of ourselves and each other. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it so, kind of goes back to what you're saying about how important people are. So this is a way to make sure that people you've chosen for these jobs stay engaged in their job in a healthy way. Right,
1: right. The other thing that you hear that pop, pops up a lot and I don't know if this is the case in your experience but certainly the legal profession is a fairly competitive one and like half the battle of getting at this issue is encouraging a culture where people can talk about this like to say like I'm having some problems just in keeping my mind together and like staying focused on what I'm doing and not but like that can be perceived as weakness for certain certain lawyers more than Mm -hmm. others and it's um. I mean half the battle is just making sure that people can can discuss right. it. I mean when, when you're you you're singing correct? my song so in addition
5: <laughs> to making resources available uh, one of our biggest challenges in a, as a profession is to remove the stigma associated right. with right. seeking right. and obtaining help uh, it, it really is uh, something that people don't talk enough about and my goal is simply to make it an acceptable topic of conversation yeah. and, and I think that as you said will go a long way it's not enough but it's the start we, we are at
2: the- I thought it was really interesting that he sort of tied it all together with the idea of you know it's not that complicated you just have to make it so that it's something people will talk about
0: right that, yeah. that,
2: you know that, that it's, it's really
0: important and and uh, ivan fong has taken a really leadership role in the gc community in pushing for people to take this more seriously talk about it more yeah um and just have it out in the open
1: yeah without a doubt Our final
2: guest for the day, arguably our most distinguished, not an insult to the other two uh, very distinguished
1: guests, but uh, we had the chief judge of the Second Circuit, Judge Robert Katzman with us. Um, So if you're scoring at home, yes, we traveled to Washington, D.C. to interview the judge who lives and
0: works in New York. (laughs) Well, you know, in fairness, (laughs) he was receiving uh, an award there. He he was, and it's actually important which one. He was uh, receiving the 20th anniversary Legal Innovation Award. Yes. And that's some of the things we got into with him are areas where he's in.
2: Yeah. And um, one particular uh, program that he's been working on out of the Second Circuit is a program called um, Justice for All Courts in the Community. And it's this sort of sweeping initiative that he's running where, um, you know, to get people to understand how the court system works. There's education components. There's um, working with local teachers. It's it's a really interesting program. And um, he sort of talked us through it and talked about why he thinks it's such an important thing.
6: Uh, What the initiative tries to do is to bring courts closer to the communities that we serve, and um, it goes both ways. We want to reach out to the communities we serve, and we want the communities we serve to feel that the courthouse is their courthouse. It's not simply a venue for resolving cases, but it's really a place for discussion, for learning, for engagement about... Uh, Our government and about our courts.
0: So can you tell us why that's so important?
6: The courts are and the judiciary They're really the bedrock of our stability in our country the idea that if You have a dispute with somebody else you can resolve that dispute peacefully That is critical Mm -hmm. to what makes our country uh, be as vibrant as it does and to the extent that the role of the judiciary is not appreciated, Uh, then I think civic education is an important way in which we can reach out as an institution the courts to the communities we serve so that they can better understand what it is that we do. The idea is not to put the courts on a pedestal. The idea is is really to uh, encourage communication between the courts and the communities that we serve through a civic education out, uh, outreach project. You know, when you consider the, uh, some of the basic statistics, you know that we've got a problem.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask about the impetus for it. Did you sense a drift, you know, between the courts and the communities they are ostensibly supposed to serve?
6: The public, for example, college graduates. Take college graduates. Ten yeah. percent of college graduates think that Judge Judy is a Supreme Court justice. <laughs> <laughs> That's... So sad. It's, tough. it's a tough start. <laughs> yeah. And a third of, uh, of, our, uh, of our people, uh, of our fellow Americans, yeah. uh, can't identify uh, a single branch of government. Um, only a minority of uh, our citizens can say anything about the Bill of Rights or mm-hmm. the First Amendment. They know so little. And how can we expect our uh, citizens to understand our constitution yeah. if they know so little about yeah. it. Do you feel
2: um, that the need for this has grown over the last few years as we've seen, you know, we've commented on it from our end, uh, uh, from the media end where we'll see judges are identified by the political party that appointed them and, and there's an increasing sense of politicization of the legal system. Do you think that an understanding of of, of the role that the courts play is, is more important now
6: than, than ever? I think it's more important now than ever. Um, I think that what we really want to convey is that, uh, that when judges put on the robes, uh, they do so without party affiliation, and that they are really uh, bound by what the Constitution says, what the, the laws of, of Congress, what precedents mm-hmm. might be. Right. And so I think understanding the role of the courts is, uh, is, is all the more important.
0: That's a pretty important thing that he's working on there. And it's so impressive because it's taken on on top of his duties as the chief judge of the Second Circuit. It's not like a small job. right? Um, But he also has another initiative, as if he wasn't busy enough. And this one's about immigration. So, of course, I wanted to ask him all about it. It's called the Immigrant Justice Corps, and it's about getting representation for immigrants during court proceedings.
6: What I noticed was that um, we had just many, many immigration cases. We were flooded with them. Yeah. And what, I, what, what you realize when you're flooded with any kind of uh, particular area of the law, you notice certain patterns. And one of the patterns that I noticed was that uh, the lawyers were really uh, substandard and that if only there had been a good lawyer, the outcomes might have been different. Mm-hmm. Because by the time the court of appeals gets a decision, it's at... The end of the process. And we are often constrained by the facts and the findings that are made by the immigration judges at the very outset of the case.
1: You can see what's going on between the lines in terms of the type of legal work being done.
6: You can see, you can see. So we would see cases where um, the briefs from one case to another, different cases, were virtually the same. Mm -hmm. The only thing that had changed was the name. Of the, of the litigant. Yeah. You're just, you're, you're, you're just
1: copy-pasting. Yeah.
6: And what I realized was that the problem was even worse than I had uh, uh, imagined. And that is we were seeing cases where there were lawyers, although not very good ones for the most part. <laughs> what was even more striking as I got into it was the percentage of people, uh, not, non-citizens who didn't have lawyers at all, and we wouldn't see those cases at all because, since they didn't have lawyers, there was never any appeal. Right, it didn't yeah, make there's it no. To you. Yeah. It didn't make it to us. Can't go anywhere. And so the, the facts are are very clear, and that is some 60 percent of uh, of immigrants uh, don't have lawyers in detention uh, proceedings. 60 mm-hmm. percent.
0: That's so many.
6: And a study that um, we undertook, uh, the study group on immigrant representation, which with which I was involved shows that um if you have a a lawyer in an asylum case um you're going to prevail 74 percent of the time oh wow just by merely having representation having yeah having a uh, representation if if you don't have a lawyer it's 13 percent and in detention cases it's um 18 percent success rate if you have a lawyer and three percent if you don't wow so the idea behind the Immigrant Justice Corps, uh, my thought was that if we could uh, put into the legal stream talented young lawyers or newly minted lawyers uh, who were dedicated to learning about immigration law mm-hmm. and to making a career in immigration, we could really do something yeah. in terms of uh, the fairness of the process. and. Um, So the Immigrant Justice Corps um, is based in New York, um, started thanks to uh, great support from the Robin Hood Foundation Mm -hmm. and other uh, foundations uh, would would come along, like uh, uh, Bloomberg, uh, JPB, uh, Leon Levy, uh, Carnegie, uh, many others. And um, we have a terrific uh, executive director, Jojo Annabelle. And the results are really uh, uh, Really extraordinary. Yeah, I was going to ask,
1: what kind of progress have you seen?
6: So, the Immigrant Justice Corps, in four and a half years, has has helped nearly fifty thousand immigrants and their families, wow. with a ninety-three percent success rate. Oh, wow, that's amazing. In completed cases, yeah. And these uh, lawyers and college graduates uh, who are doing paralegal work—they're really extraordinary. They're uh, Bilingual, multilingual, they can earn the trust of their communities that mm-hmm. they serve because they speak the language. There have been some 175 fellows that um, have come into the process because of this, um, because of, of, of what the Immigrant Justice Corps has done. And these are people who will be dedicating their careers. They will be the leaders right. in in uh, justice for immigrants. Yeah
2: very interesting chat I thought I thought it was particularly interesting when he you know he talked about sort of the the postural limitations of of you know I, I'm I'm an appellate court judge I'm obviously very powerful. Yeah. There's only so much I can do if if, yeah. if cases are botched at the very earliest level and things aren't kept in the record and things right, like that because
0: they're not the um, the fact court. Right. Yeah. And yeah. he did
2: he did mention that this was not in his official capacity as as you know as a Second Circuit judge. That this was an outside group,
1: but that. Um. But it, it but it was remarkable that he would. I mean, it's no secret that like in a lot of ways, the system isn't working the way it ought to but like right. for, for him to recognize it and decide to like you know you, like like you say it's not in his official official capacity but decide that it's something he wants to pursue mm-hmm. uh, from that position of influence very interesting
0: yeah, you can definitely see why he got a legal innovation award yeah. because definitely. these are two giant programs that could really make a difference. in our show is something offbeat, and believe it or not, even in a show structured based on all of these great talks at the Burton Awards, we have some stuff that was light and fun, and it's from Chief Justice Roberts.
1: These are the John Roberts B-sides here, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the real crowd pleasers, yeah. Uh, the first thing he got, um, we were talking, it came up because it was like, okay, you're the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, it's a very important job, of course, but he enlightened the crowd into some of the more overlooked aspects of that position? Uh, Some of the
3: thing is, uh, is, uh, some things are surprising and and quite enjoyable. I am, by virtue of being uh, the Chief Justice, also the Chancellor of the Smithsonian. Um, Yeah, Chancellor is a pretty good uh, (laughs) imposing title, Uh, but um, it involves running their Board of Regents meetings, uh, which is an impressive group of people. And it's an interesting situation, because you're there, and I'm not expected to know anything about what's going on. <laughs> Which, but in a, in a way, it's interesting, because it, it kind of forces them, the people who are the experts, they kind of have to be able to explain, uh, you know, generally, in a layman's terms, what's going on. And that's, uh, that's an important contribution. But... Um, uh, and it's a fascinating institution. And one good thing about it is whenever there's a new panda, you get to be the first to see it. So that's a, um, That's great.
0: <laughs> that is no small perk. I- Alex, you and I both lived in D.C. <laughs> we did, yeah. Those pandas are—they're a hot ticket. That's right. The in National Town. Zoo, it, yeah. the,
1: the, the gates are overflowing. He okay. Also, one of the
2: other things he mentioned was he's—he's uh, he's chief of security uh, for the Chiefs, uh, the Kansas <laughs> City Chiefs.
1: Um, the commute is hell. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> tough, But by by statute, that's how it works. That's how it works. Yep. The uh, yeah, and you could hear—I I didn't know. Did you guys know that?
0: No, I mean I knew some of his other duties that I are knew the they had the things, known, yeah. but, he
1: but he took a beat there because like there was a murmur through the crowd. I was like, yeah. is he like joking? Around Right I now, did or, think, right. yeah, maybe he was kidding. So yeah, did I. Yeah, and then he was like, "No, seriously." So yeah, it was it was, it was interesting stuff. The uh, the other thing we wanted to highlight
2: was, uh, you know, I think sometimes we've talked on this show about the whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing when judges seem to be enjoying themselves writing opinions. Like, I,
0: I'm always in the good thing camp, even when they go too far. But.
2: Just to, to play devil's advocate, I will I will argue that, that, you know, sometimes it comes off as a little offensive when it's like serious matters and they're right. like f- throwing fun quotes. But in I'm the stuff. person
0: who's brought to an offbeat a judge writing things and referencing Shakespeare. Like, I like that. Sure. Yeah. yeah.
2: But uh, one thing that Roberts has been known for over the last few years is that he will sometimes pepper in Bob Dylan quotes into his into his writing. And, uh, you know, he was asked about that and about why he does that. And uh, it was an interesting answer.
3: Uh, you You do have some fun writing opinions, and uh, you 've been known for example, to quote Bob Dylan from time to time is that are your sisters particular fans of Bob Dylan no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. so uh, are, are you uh, so we were talking about this ahead of time, and the Chief Justice pulled out a big thick book out of his stand-up desk that was the complete lyrics of Bob Dylan so um, this is not just a passing fancy of yours you you uh, have done this from time to time. What's, what's the Bob Dylan connection? I've always admired his music. I admire it more, as I think many people do, as poetry <laughs> than as actual music. I mean, it's not the best voice <laughs> for communicating uh, things. But I do think he's a, a very insightful thinker and writer, and some of his songs uh, really do, uh, do appeal to me. And, and I don't go out of my way to do it, but sometimes it just expresses the thought Perfectly, and you may as well put it in the opinion. Um, I wrote an opinion on standing, you know, does a person have a particular uh, tangible injury in the case? And you know, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose, <laughs> kind of. Pretty much sums that, it up. That captures the whole thing. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, if there's a point where the message can be conveyed succinctly like that, I think it's good. That's great.
1: Uh, yeah, Roberts is in like full, like, like full boomer mode there which is kind yeah, of interesting to see he's... and it actually got me thinking about when we get around to the time when there's like a millennial supreme court Ooh. justice if the, if it's he'll gonna be, be like, all taylor swift or like father john misty or something <laughs> on there so that, 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 that's something to look forward to if else. it
0: sure is and that was the final thing that roberts talked about it seems like a good final place to end our burton show i think so i hope everybody liked it as much as we did we had a great time going on awesome. and talking to some really impressive people Thanks for being with me today, guys. Thanks, Bill.
2: See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks.
0: We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our special guests this week, Dorian Daly, Ivan Fong, and Judge Robert Katzman. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. We'd love if you subscribe to us and leave us a written review. It helps others find pro se. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website at law360.com podcast. Thanks, and join us again next week.